Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support this podcast, sign up to my Patreon site and each week from my home here in Stirling you'll receive an exclusive video featuring a mix of history, comment and current affairs. On my site there's a whole archive of films to watch. There's one on the history of pandemics, there's another about a recent discovery of a new variation on on the human species, Uh, new money in old clothes, there's one about the Spartans uh, who inspired the film 300. There's another about the Battle of Britain. Uh, there's there's at least one about the Vikings. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. To get your hands on all these films, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. I'll look forward to seeing you there. Okay, that's the news about my Patreon site. Here comes this week's podcast. Cue the music. They had a foot in both worlds and they had the wit and the talent to chronicle it and to create unforgettable fiction. In this episode, we come face to face with genius, born of hardship and of rock. On the wild Yorkshire moors, three young sisters are forging their talents. Perfect prose laying bare the social conventions of the day the harsh realities of the local life and the desolate, bare beauty of the moors surrounding them. Brilliance that shaped and changed the world of literature. Their lives were full of love, but edged with hardship and tragedy. But their imagination powered a creativity which lit up the world. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode we marvelled at the bravery and fortitude of the lighthouse keepers who down through history have protected lives at sea. Where are we this week? Well, we're leaving behind the perilous coast of these isles and heading inland to the busy village of Horth. Sitting on the edge of the beguiling, wild Yorkshire moors, we're watching a flash of brilliance take hold in the Bronte Parsonage. 
we are in a place that's very dear to my heart because, well, I associate it with my wife, actually. It's the Bronte Parsonage in the village of Horth in West Yorkshire. I associate it with my wife for two reasons. Uh, the Bronte Parsonage obviously was home to the Bronte sisters. And uh, Trudy and I met at Glasgow University as students and I was studying archaeology and she was studying English literature and language. And she's a great fan of the classics, the works of the Brontes amongst them. And also, that's the first reason, but the second reason is that she and I visited. We went to the Bronte Parsonage together when we were just, oh, we were just still young, maybe in our late teens, maybe early, just early 20s. And we went to the Bronte Parsonage and we had the tour around it and we saw the, the place. That's the first time I encountered the Parsonage. And then we went up for a walk on the wild and wuthering moors behind it. So it's close to my heart for that reason, because when I think about it, I think about it in connection to my then girlfriend, now wife. Horth is, it's kind of enveloped now and uh, it's, you know, it's next to Bradford, it's in that neck of the woods and it's very industrialised now. But when the Bronte family lived there, that was just happening, but it was still a place in its own right, Horth. You know, there was a gap between it and the next place along. In latter years, though, it has struck me as being a kind of a, a metaphor for the British Isles. Because the British Isles, when you look at it, were small on, on the surface of the globe. And if you were coming from outer space and looking down, you, if you looked at our little archipelago at all, you, you probably wouldn't assume naturally that it had had the influence on the wider world that it has had. And it's just a few rocks, really, of dry land in the North Atlantic, bobbing about off the coast of northwestern Europe. And you'd overlook it. But from that cradling, great ambition and great genius and great influence were generated. And so it is with the Bronte Parsonage. It was in a tough place. Horth in their day was, was tough because of the, the changes that were coming with industrialisation. Lives were, you know, nasty, brutish and short. Child mortality was desperately high. The Bronte Parsonage is surrounded by a graveyard. It was the, the Bronte's family's dad was the curate in Horth. So they lived surrounded by the cemetery because their house was in the middle of it. And all the gravestones, you know, you see those tragic lists of dead, dead children as all those graveyards had at that time. So it was a tough place. And yet, and yet, it created genius. And so Britain's the same on a larger scale. Quite a tough place. Maybe not much going for it, you wouldn't necessarily think. And yet, somehow or other, it made a difference to the world. The Bronte sisters, for those that aren't fans of English lit, uh, it's Charlotte, Emily and Anne. And they were born, actually, in Thornton, another village near Bradford. But they moved to Horth because of their dad, Patrick. He was appointed curate. And it's changed now because of the, the impact of the modern world. But the wild Yorkshire moors are still the high ground behind them still there, that landscape is still there to be enjoyed and appreciated and they lived in this slightly cut off world because they were behind the walls of the cemetery and behind the walls of the parsonage 
and somehow or other they kindled genius together the three of them a century and a half after them we look at the Brontes and it's almost a caricature that we have of them because we think of three little physically small spinsterly ladies kind of oppressed by their time and giving some outlet to their frustrations by writing novels that were published under made-up men's names. When their books came out, they were published under men's names because, you know, women weren't supposed to write, weren't supposed to get published. But that is to do them a, a gross disservice. It's much more accurate to see them for what they were, which is to say tough, strong-willed uh, survivors. They had come through the death of their mother, Maria, uh, and also two of their sisters. There were two more Bronte sisters who didn't survive into adulthood. And they also, they benefited from growing up in a house full of books. Patrick was a big reader, and he had the works of Byron and Sir Walter Scott and Shakespeare and many more on the walls of the of the library in the parsonage. And the girls, the women, were encouraged to read widely and to read of them all. Patrick Bronte was a man who liked to talk. He was, in, he was interested in literature. He was interested in the politics of the day. And he obviously was, spent most of his time in the company of his daughters and his son, Bramwell. And they all talked. And so it was a vibrant, intellectually stimulating atmosphere in which they lived and grew. That special atmosphere at home seems to have helped free them to speak clearly. Yes, I think, I suppose, the women then did, they did live in constrained circumstances, without a doubt. Women of their class, you know, they were sort of of the middling sort, lower, slightly impoverished, middle-class people. And for a woman, they couldn't work. What they were waiting on was a marriage. And then within, within the marriage, there were, you know, limitations placed on what they could do. And all the social, all the societal conventions of the time, all the etiquette impinged so heavily upon women. They were held back and restricted in ways that men have never been. And it must have been so difficult, especially for, for women like them who were bright. Yeah, they were clever, talented. They were women of ability and they had been educated up to a point by their father and by exposure to, to what he knew. And to not be able to flex those intellectual muscles would drive you to distraction. But they did find, they did find the outlet. They did write and they encouraged one another. They were literally a sisterhood. They supported and encouraged each other to write. They read each other's books and they kept each other going. You can go, I mean, I, like I say, I went there with Trudy when we were kids, really, and the house that they're in, it's Georgian, you know, that sort of flat, distinctive flat frontage. Georgian houses are very sort of, they made the most of the appearance that they had from the street, so they're, they're as wide as possible, but actually quite shallow from front to back. It was all about trying to show off. They look like bigger houses than they actually are. When you get into them, they don't go very far back. 
but it is a good looking house Uh huh. oh it's lovely it's very, yes it's very much so it, but still you can't get away from the fact that by a lot of modern standards it does look small and when you go inside the rooms are small so there's a kind of elegance to it but it also feels like a home you can imagine people living there and having a nice life by the standards of the day but the rooms are small um, it's all been preserved the furniture that they knew their clothes and their possessions are still dotted around and the dresses that the women wore and left behind they are tiny some of it's a little bit like being in a doll's house Charlotte was just four feet eight inches tall wow you know that's even smaller than Kylie Minogue <laughs> <laughs> but you know the they're diminutive people. We'd have been struck by how, you know, how slight they were. And you can walk the rooms and you can see the desks and and the, and and it's it's just it's so evocative and romantic to think of that house being populated by the women who thought up the characters and the incidents of Wuthering Heights and the tenant of Wildfell Hall and Jane Eyre. There's a, a, an Irish novelist called George Moore who wrote in 1924 that Agnes Grey, which is Anne's novel, he said it was the most perfect prose narrative in English letters. And, you know, had her life not been cut short, he reckoned that her abilities might have led her to achievements that would have eclipsed even those of Jane Austen. Obviously, Jane Austen is, is often mentioned in the same breath as the Bronte sisters. But in the opinion of George Moore and others, if Anne had lived longer she might have outclassed her. But there was no long life for the Bronte sisters. By 1849, Anne was dead at 29 years old. 29. Uh, she died of TB, tuberculosis, consumption as, as they would have known it. By then, Emily was already dead of the same disease. She died five months earlier, just five months before. She was only 30. Bramwell was gone by then as well. He was 31. So, in a relatively short space of time, when they were all still just ridiculously, tragically young, there was only Charlotte left. She married. Uh, by 1855, she was pregnant with what would have been her first child. She could have been, would have been the, the, the happy ending for the Brontes, but she died as well. Either It's not clear. She either died of TB or complications related to her pregnancy. And she was just 38 so the eldest of the Bronte sisters was gone at 38. Wow, so the whole family gone by 1855? Well, yeah, Patrick had outlived his wife and all his children. He was left alone. They achieved all that they did, while they were still just in what we would regard as extended youth. The impact that they made was done although they lived for such a short time. So tragically, they were fighting on two fronts, against the conventions as well as the illnesses of the day. Yeah, well, they were probably overlooked at the time. They probably lived, to some extent, invisible lives. But yes, they were strong. You know, they were working against, they were swimming against currents that were running against them, societal. And also, those women dying those kinds of deaths of a disease like tuberculosis was commonplace. Horth, like many other 
towns in the area, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution was, was happening. Housing was being thrown up to accommodate workers for the mills. These were mill towns. And the housing that was thrown up was cold and cramped and unsanitary. Cholera was a commonplace disease at the time. And as we've already mentioned, you know, the children were just being harvested at a terrifying rate. For the want of any kind of birth control or contraception, you know, women were just pregnant one after the other. And for all of those reasons, the conditions, the poverty, children were just dying, dropping like flies. The way that we feel about our children, I often look at these gravestones with these long, where you'd see that the same, you know, a mother and father losing three, four, five children. And they were maybe lucky if one or two would, would survive into adulthood, never mind living long lives. And you think, how did they live with that? They weren't just like losing one child, which would be an unspeakable tragedy in itself, but many, many families were losing two and three and four children. And you think the toll, the mental and emotional toll that that must have taken on people right up into the modern era. It's not that long ago that these people were living with that kind of horror, that shadow of of death, not just on the adults, but on the children as well. Society's mores are constantly adapting, aren't they? It reminds me of your story about how in 1852, the rules were changed about who got saved first when a ship went down at sea. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, the, the, the tradition of, of women and children first, uh, you know, that was the, the Birkenhead drill, and that was the that was established aboard the HMS Birkenhead, which was a troop ship going out to Africa, taking troops out to the war in Africa. Uh, and it, it struck a struck a reef off the coast, and they were going down in shark-infested waters. And th- typically, there, there weren't enough lifeboats. Um, but for the very... F- and normally the cry that would have gone out was, you know, um, save yourselves, every man for himself. But but on that occasion aboard the Birkenhead, the commanding officer said, no, we're going to put... Because the, the, as well as troops, there were families of, of some of the troops travelling. And he said, we're going to put the women and the children in the available boats, which is what they did. And then what they did was the army, I think it maybe still does, but certainly then they followed a drill which was funeral order. So once the women and children were accommodated and there were some spaces left, those were filled by funeral order, which is to say youngest first. So the 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds and whatever went in next, the thinking being, well, you know, these people have had the least of life and they are entitled to the chance. You know, you're 30, you're 40, you've had those years. These these are teenagers, we'll let them get the chance. Uh, But, you know, the the Birkenhead drill, which we know as women and children first, that is the Birkenhead drill. We talk about sacrifice and we talk about hardship, but we don't know the half of it. The reality of most people's lives for most of time has been horrendous. You know, most people have lived with poverty and disease, lives truncated, lives cut short by hard work and by illness and lack of food, lack of medicines. And that was the reality for most people for most of recorded history. We're only just beyond it now. It's only after the Second World War that we had the welfare state and the National Health Service up until that point. I mean, my mum, my mum is 88 now and and she's old enough to remember when you had to pay for... If a doctor came out to your house, you had to pay. 
That was the fact of it. And if you didn't have the money, the doctor didn't come. That was the world that the Bronte sisters grew up in, but they were not passive victims. They might have been physically frail, but they were mentally strong. And they, they looked out for each other and they supported each other and encouraged each other. Anne Bronte's novels, they seem to really come to the fore. They seem to be the most powerful of all. And she wrote about, within her novels, the realities of life for women of their station. In particular, there's a novel, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, and it was quite scandalous when it published. It caused quite the brouhaha when it came out because it dared to portray the damage done to a family by an alcoholic, violent husband. And that was a thing that wasn't... You just didn't write about that. You didn't talk about it. That was kept behind closed doors. You didn't wash your dirty linen in public. But in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, Anne confronted society with those realities. So they were, they were trailblazers. They weren't just turning out pretty purple prose. They were dealing with the realities of what it was like to be women like themselves. And they were, they were portraying the way in which women of their station and their class were so inhibited and so constrained, whether they wanted to be or not, society wouldn't let them breathe. We all know about women wearing corsets that were so tight they would faint. You know, they'd have an attack of the vapours because they couldn't to get a deep breath because of the corsetry. They were constrained in a similar way by society. They were just bound so tight. And so the achievement of the Bronte sisters is all the more remarkable for the world it came from. It is worth paying attention to that. But then having said that, the hardship of the world around them in the form of Horth and its mills, that also fired their imaginations. It was grist to, the, to their mill. And of course, the landscape. If you go to the, the Bronte Parsonage, there's a signposted walk that goes up from behind the, behind the church, where the, the Bronte family vault is in that church. The path winds up into, into the wild and the Wuthering, you know, Wuthering Heights. Wuthering is a, is a word that means stormy weather. That's what Wuthering actually is. It's a dialect word for, for storms in that part of Yorkshire, in that part of Britain. After a couple of miles along the path, you come to uh, the Bronte Falls, so-called. Charlotte wrote about them in, in the November of 1854. She described a trip to the falls. They weren't called the Bronte Falls then, of course. She was with her husband, Arthur Bell Nichols. I can quote from her writings. I intended to have written a line yesterday, but just as I was sitting down for that purpose, Arthur called to me to take a walk. We set off, not intending to go far. But though wild and cloudy, it was fine in the morning. When we got about half a mile on the moors, Arthur suggested the idea of the waterfall. After the melted snow, he said it would be fine. I had often wished to see it in its winter power, so we walked on. It was fine indeed, a perfect torrent racing over the rocks, white and beautiful. And if you keep on going beyond the falls, you come to a, a, a ruined farmhouse. It's called Top Withens. Fans of the Brontes say it was, it would have been the inspiration for Heathcliff's home in Wuthering Heights. There's no, there's no proof of that, it's just speculation. But it does have that wild atmosphere, that the atmosphere around Top Withens is the atmosphere of Wuthering Heights. When she wrote about Heathcliff's house, Emily wrote, pure bracing ventilation they must have up here at all times. At all times indeed, one may guess the power of the north wind blowing over the edge by the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house 
and by a range of gaunt thorns all stretching their limbs one way as if craving the alms of the sun. And so it's, it's a place of, what would you say, desolate beauty. It's a hard, you know, the Yorkshire moors, I mean, it, without a doubt, it's beautiful. When the sun's on it, or even when the storms are blowing and the clouds are, clouds are scudding over the tops, it is beautiful. It always makes me think of, um, of the face of, of a beautiful woman or, or a handsome man, indeed, but aged, where you can see the, the passage of time on the face, but you can still tell that the person is and was beautiful or handsome on account of their bone structure. You know, you know there are some people who, even as they age, even after the youth has gone from them, they remain lovely to the end. There's something about that about Yorkshire. It's a sort of a, a face without makeup, scraped clean, but still, still stunning. And there's wildlife up there as well. You know, it wasn't just the Bronte sisters eking a living in that landscape. You know, it's famous for bird life, birds of prey, raptors, peregrines, and merlins that you'll see against the sky. Curlews, golden plovers. It's lovely. It's a lovely place. And as I said before, I think the, the Bronte parsonage, Horth and the Moors, it's that metaphor for Britain. It's a landscape made of weather and rock. But for all that it was tough and unforgiving, a harsh mother, it gave birth to the genius of the Bronte women, the Bronte sisters. And like Britain, Horth, the parsonage, it's on the edge of hardship. But bright fires were kindled and they were tended and, like Britain, the creative output of the Bronte sisters lit up the world. With its hilly, cobbled high street and the moors as a backdrop, Horth's a beautiful place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's, uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, the old um, Hovis advert, you know, the, the, wee, the wee boy pushing the bike, you know, pushing uphill... It is, it's very much that. You know, the houses and the streets, they had to conform to the topography of the place. So it's winding streets made steep by the hills beneath. Uh, but it's beautiful. I, 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 so much of what I love about the British Isles, it, it's a small place in many respects, but there's such variety. And the Yorkshire moors and the dales, but that, that landscape, that rolling landscape, combined with the impact of humankind, you know, so the, the dry stone walls and the and the traditional houses of the villages, the farmhouses of the sort that are manifest, I suppose, in the parsonage at Horth, they augment and they work in the landscape. You know, the more recent industrialization is much more of a blight, but that earlier approach to architecture in that part of the world somehow suited it, added something to it, or at least it didn't detract. But then as the Industrial Revolution went on, obviously that time passed and the the dark satanic mills, so-called, did begin to dominate and the damage was done, I suppose. But the Bronte sisters, they inhabited a time on the cusp when the old world was being left behind and the industrialised world was coming, but they were straddling both. They had a foot in both worlds and they had the wit and the talent to chronicle it and to make of it and to create unforgettable fiction of the sort that inspired my wife and drew her to study English at Glasgow University and if it hadn't, we'd never have met, you know. 
So it's sort of, it's woven through the fabric of, of our relationship and it's been there from the beginning. When were the Bronte sisters given their due? Well, I'd say, the, you know, their books were published under, under assumed names, which gives you an indication. You know, the publishers thought, well, if, if they go out with women's names, no one's going to buy them. <laughs> you know, they'll have, they'll, have to go out, they'll have to go under men's names. And so they did. And so, yeah, it was coming. But the, the, the real impact that they've made is, is after their time. As so often happens, it was in, in hindsight that people realised just how much they had mattered and what they'd meant. But their, their books made an impact at the time. As I say, Tenet of Wildfell Hall, Agnes Grey, you know, at Wuthering Heights, they, they did make an impact at the time. If those women were alive today, well, you can't really say that, can you? You can't, you can't lift them out of the, the world that made them. They only were what they were because they were the product of their unique circumstances. So you can't change any of it or we wouldn't have the Bronte sisters at all. Mother of paleontology, a fossil hunter extraordinaire, living on the magical Jurassic coast whose formation stretches back 190 million years. One of ten siblings whose life was plunged into tragedy and penury with the death of her father. Often working in foul weather and in precarious locations, discovering extraordinary new species her skill and knowledge furthering science. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.